Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Daniel Vandervliet. He is the executive director at the Smith Family Business Initiative based at Cornell University. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks, Jordan. Good to hear you. Let's just start your, with your background, and then we'll get into the Smith Family Business Initiative. But give us a little bit of your background uh, leading into your position at the uh, initiative. Well, sure. I've been here at Cornell just over a year. Uh, I came on to be the founding director of the Smith Family Business Initiative. Uh, prior to that, I was at the University of Vermont uh, for about 15 years uh, doing a, a number of roles there, but um, primarily doing something very similar called the Family Business Initiative at UVM. Uh, while there, we ran a program for family business owners and successors that helped them build their network and maybe answer some of the questions that are particular to family business. Uh, we also created the first ever case competition for family enterprise while there, uh, which was attended by about 24 different teams from around the world. Uh, even though there are numerous case competitions for uh, many aspects of business, this was the first time it had been done for family enterprise, and it was very successful and remains one of the best case competitions, if not only one, for family business uh, globally. So tell me about the Smith Family, family Business Initiative, which is about a year old or so. Uh, what was the uh, impetus behind finding it? Tell me about the Smith family and what is the purpose of the initiative? Sure. The Smith Family Business Initiative was founded when um, John Smith, who's a 1974 MBA alum, uh, gave a very generous gift to create um, a program that was really designed to educate students, create new knowledge, uh, and build a global network of family business leaders. Um, and uh, in John's case, his business was CRST, Cedar Rapids Steel Transit, um, and that's based in Cedar Rapids. And uh, John is the second generation in that business, and he took it over from his dad, uh, Smitty. Um, this was a business that grew up uh, bringing uh, freight into um, Chicago and one of the early transportation companies to realize that you could actually haul freight both ways. So a great example of family business being innovative. It wasn't until John's children, three children, came of age that he realized he really had a family business and he needed to figure out um, you know, how he was going to get that to the next generation. Uh, he began exploring some family business program options and, and got some good advice on uh, installing governance um, and creating succession plans. Um, and when it came time for him to give back, realized that uh, – as, as great as his education was at Cornell, uh, that this could be a place where Cornell could really be a leader, and and uh, uh, hence the gift was uh, uh, created, and um, and hence I came on. Now you have a conference coming up at the end of this week. Actually, tell me a little bit about what's going to be happening at that conference, and where can people go if they want to find out more about it. Sure. So this is our first um, public program. That uh, the goal of which is really to. Um, highlight uh, the range and impact of family enterprise from entrepreneurs and local businesses all the way to global enterprises and legacy families. Uh, it's a great opportunity for business owners, successors, students, uh, affiliates, and even alumni to come together uh, to network, to learn, and to grow um, their understanding of family enterprise. Um, it uh, kicks off on Thursday night uh, with a wonderful keynote from Eric Allen. Eric is the former chair of WellChallen, which is a medical products manufacturer, 100-year-old family business, which just recently sold for $2 billion to a Dutch company, Bin Ram. And um, so it would be interesting to hear the story from that perspective, how a family after 100 years of um, business ownership 
uh, can agree upon selling a business, which can be a very emotional decision. Um, the program uh, continues all day on Friday with a keynote from John Smith himself, so it'll be wonderful to have him back on campus here in Ithaca. Um, our afternoon lunch uh, guest is Charlie Kittredge. Charlie is the former chairman uh, and CEO of Crane and Company, which is the company that prints the, cur- the paper that our currency is printed on. Uh, and it's a wonderful story of a 215-year-old family business uh, that, after almost two centuries, had to discover how to almost reinvent themselves and become more entrepreneurial. So, um, And then throughout the day are a mix of panels and workshops on everything from women in leadership, entrepreneurship, uh, emerging markets, um, and students entering the family business. So uh, it will really be a wonderful opportunity for anyone at any spectrum, any um, uh, point in the spectrum to come together, uh, meet and greet with their peers, uh, to learn uh, and hopefully walk away realizing, um, you know, they're, they're family businesses are something special and, and they should be celebrated as such. What is a website where people can find out more about both the conference and the overall uh, Smith Business Initiative? Sure. Johnson.cornell.edu slash family business. That will take us to the SFBA, SFBI homepage, and they can find out everything about the conference and everything else we do right there. Very good. So now let's take a pro, kind of a broader view of the whole family business situation. People might not realize how many family businesses there are. Give us a sense in the United States of how prevalent family businesses are, uh, mm-hmm. how much they contribute to the economy. Kind of give us a broad view before we get into some of the details of how important family business is to the U.S. economy. So there are many different definitions of what a family business is, and and I think the most basic of which is that the family essentially controls decision-making power in the business. By that definition, uh, anywhere from about 80 to 90 percent of all businesses in the U.S. are family and or privately owned. So that's a huge slice of the economy, and actually if you went globally, that number probably creeps up well over 90 percent. So when you say the word family business, uh, people often will skew towards the small end of the scale because that's what they're most familiar with. They're familiar with the corner store. Uh, they're familiar with, um, you know, the gas station that's family owned. Um, but really family business, um, are, you can find them throughout uh, the economic spectrum from those small businesses all the way up to the SC Johnsons, the Walmarts, uh, the Cargills of the world. Uh, so it's a very wide swath, but what is fascinating is they, they really all have one thing in common, and that is the presence of family, which, uh, as we all know, can, can sometimes, you know, complicate matters. Now, talk, talk about the global nature of uh, family businesses today. How many of them are going to emerging markets to sell their goods? Kind of get a, get a sense of their global nature these days. Sure. You know, probably uh, anywhere from about uh, you know 60% or so are, are beginning to understand that there's um, you know great opportunities in emerging markets and these are uh, you know places like Latin America, uh, China, um, uh, and, and certain countries in, in Africa. So uh, by latest estimates, about 58% of those um, medium-sized enterprises are looking to emerging markets to sell their goods. Uh, and I think this is an area of particular interest for Cornell and the Johnson School here as we have something called the Emerging Markets Institute. Um, so internally, you know, we're looking for ways to partner so that as we're getting students here from Pakistan, from India, from uh, Brazil, um, not only are they getting a sort of traditional family business education, but 
um, hopefully we have something to help them understand, you know, what's different and uh, particular about businesses in emerging markets. China itself is still considered an emerging market, even though it's one of the largest economies uh, in the world. And then how about women in family business? Probably the image would be that it's mostly headed by men, but are women becoming important in family businesses as far as not only running them now, but taking them over in the future? Yeah, you know, I think this is a real exciting place um, for women in leadership and women in business ownership. There's certainly a lot of attention given to that. Family businesses tend to be a little bit ahead of the curve here. Um, and, uh, you know, about 24% of family businesses are led by a female CEO. Um, and that number will continue to increase. Almost a third of all businesses anticipate the next leader will be female. And this only stands to reason. And, and you know, more traditional times, uh, you know, the, there was sort of a, um, the idea of primogeniture that, um, you know, the business would always go to the eldest son. But what we're finding is that, um, you know, women bring sort of a different tool set and skill set to leadership. And not only are they becoming um, uh, more prevalent in leadership and board positions, but they're also doing things differently. They tend to be uh, more uh, philanthropic with their money. They tend to uh, at times create a different culture in their business. Um, and one of the panels at the conference on Friday will actually look specifically at uh, the evolving role of women in leadership in, in the family business. As far as the next generation, what does it look like as far as women taking over the family businesses? Um, it's looking like to be about 30, uh, at least a third um, of, of the next generation, or at least leadership in some of those businesses, anticipate that that leader uh, will be um, a female. And, and I think that uh, signals a great opportunity both for uh, women in leadership, but also women in ownership um, or C-suite uh, board level positions. Do you think a lot of people in the business world, business schools, and even in Washington, kind of recognize the importance and what's different about family businesses compared to other businesses? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because it can sometimes be a challenge to study family business or even, say, give them a voice. And that's because, you know, they're not their own industry segment. They're not manufacturing. They're not service. Um, they're a little bit of all of that. Um, and by all surveys, um, you know, there, there's often not a little checkbox that they indicate where they are family business. Even if there were, most family businesses tend to be very private um, as, you know, and as such, you know, as private enterprise, their financial findings are not uh, reported publicly. So it's often hard to track down some of these family businesses. Some of those that fit the definition of a family business don't necessarily want to be considered um, as a family business, especially if we think of family businesses often as um, insular or small. They, they, they certainly don't want to be classified as such. Um, there is certainly an effort that uh, is underway, though, to, to help bring some of the voice of family and private enterprise together. Um, and uh, there's a, a group called Family Enterprise USA that uh, has been doing just that, is, is somewhat of an advocacy-type group for um, family businesses because what we found is that, you know, family businesses as a segment um, actually create jobs. Um, uh, about 60% of all new jobs are created by family business. They um, are drivers of the economy in terms of contributions to GDP. Um, and they also tend to be, you know, more stable. Uh, for the most part, you know, what we find are family businesses are most concerned with continuity and, and really sort of staying where they are. So they're important to uh, not only the national economy, but many of the local economies that they're a part of. And this is also true on a global scale. You're saying around the world, family businesses are even more important 
than they are in the U.S., U.S. being very important, sure. but even more so. So what is the, the global situation about family businesses? Well, there's some neat research um, and findings that are coming out um, now. Uh, one uh, researcher that I know of uses the term extremophiles, and uh, they're looking at sort of the slice of family businesses that are um, primarily in emerging markets, but uh, these are businesses that are threatened by political unrest, by uh, environmental um, instability, or by uh, economic uh, turmoil. And what they found is that many of those businesses are actually better prepared for uh, the challenges that um, await them. Uh, you know, here at Cornell, I've, I've run into numerous students uh, who come from some of these emerging economies. And, you know, it's really struck to hear the stories of, um, you know, in some cases, buildings being blown up, and in some cases, um, uh, you know, children being, uh, you know, possibly kidnapped. And, you know, these are things we don't think about here in the U.S., but in areas that uh, sometimes we only hear about on the news, business does go on. Uh, and many of these businesses are much more adaptable. They're much more connected to their social networks. Um, and, and even though, you know, things are quite unstable there, um, you know, they often have, you know, a, um, a timeline horizon that looks beyond, you know, sort of the current crisis. So I think there's a lot to be learned uh, from some of those businesses um, in emerging markets. Um, and also, you know, when we look at, you know, the places like China and South America where, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, some of the, you know, they, they, they tend to be sort of more connected with their local um, networks, which really uh, helps them, you know, create and, and sustain their businesses. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Dan Vandervliet. Uh, he is the executive director at the Smith Bam Family Business Initiative based at Cornell University. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Dan Vandervliet. He is the executive director at the Smith Family Business Initiative based at Cornell University. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Thanks, Jordan. So we talked a lot about the overall view of family business. Let's get into some of the specific issues related to family business. How is a family business different than a traditional uh, publicly traded company or other things that are not really controlled by the family but controlled by professional managers? Sure. You know, this is a, a question that comes up a lot, and, and it's sort of relevant in, you know, why do colleges and students need to study this? And as we talked about earlier, if 80 to 90 percent of all businesses are family-owned, then that means you're probably going to work in, for, or with a family business at some point, and understanding what makes them different, I think, is really critical. What makes them different is really that overlap of family and business and then to throw in one more little wrinkle is ownership, which is typically what you see in family business is that sort of um, interplay between who owns the business, who works in the business, and who is related to the business. Uh, and this is where it kind of gets sticky, not only in those three circles, but really where they overlap. I mean, imagine a situation where uh, you and I are brothers and I work in the business and you don't but yet we still have an equal ownership stake of that business, either through our investment or through our relationship to our parents. Um, as the employee in the business, I see things very differently than somebody who's not working in the business and might even have um, zero interaction with what goes on in the day-to-day -day operations. So it's, it's the family's ability to communicate those differences um, and their ability to really make decisions that both serve the business and the family, and sometimes those uh, are divergent paths, and sometimes they might be the same path. Uh, but uh, as as we know, families often tend to be, you know, sort of they they push away at things that you know require require them to be professional or formal. Uh, you know, we don't like to have written rules for everything, but uh, uh, in a business setting, that can sometimes be a recipe for disaster. So what makes a, a successful family business when you have all these dynamics going on? I, I would argue that what makes the, the really good businesses successful is their ability to sort of pull those circles apart. So um, in the businesses that I've seen and what a lot of the research will suggest is that those businesses that are able to sort of have governance um, or formalized decision-making processes, not just in the family but also in the business as well as ownership, to be able to communicate between those three circles at the same time um, often will allow for um, you know rapid decision making, effective decision making, and and a, a relative level of harmony because people are informed um, and uh, and therefore often decent decisions are being made. Um, and I think often it's just you know a, a certain level of honesty that uh, you know um, as a business you know you might need to make some choices that. Maybe not everyone in the family agrees with, but uh, in order for that business to uh, continue to succeed, you know, the, the family might need to distance themselves from the business or, in some cases, sell. So you're saying also that being a family business can be a marketing advantage, but a lot of family businesses don't really take full advantage of that, uh, saying the business has been 
in our family for a long time. Does that differentiate them from a big corporation that's kind of impersonal? Is that the idea you're saying here? Well, I, th- I think families imply a certain level of honesty and trust. Now, whether that, that promise is fulfilled or not might be a different issue. But, um, you know, when we see the businesses that promote themselves as family-owned, you know, since 1920 or, you know, in business for 100 years, I, I think there's a certain level of understanding that, you know, there's, there's something going on there that has allowed them to um, survive for that long. And I know, personally speaking, when I walk into certain businesses that I know and, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, the last name is on the uh, front sign and I'm talking with, you know, Joe Jr. at the front desk, you know, I I feel like I'm sort of getting the answers I want to get rather than just somebody at the front desk uh, who may or may not know the full story. So, and when we look at sort of the the world that we're in today, a world that's becoming increasingly more disconnected, increasingly more uh, sometimes feels like it's dominated by big businesses, you know, sometimes that human touch really is a distinct advantage. Um, and, uh, and you're saying to be explicitly, they should be marketing it. We've been in business for however many years or fourth generation. It should be an explicit part of their marketing message is what you're saying. Well, I think, I think that's a choice the family needs to make, but there are some risks with that as well. I mean, if, if you're going to put your family out front of that business and make that part of your marketing, um, then you also run the risk of, you know, are the family members living up to that promise? And we've seen many examples where, um, you know, family members of, of known family businesses, uh, you know, get into a sticky situation and then, you know, that, that can sort of bring the business down as well, whether they're related to the business or not. Uh, I mean, I look at the situation of Market Basket not too long ago and, uh, and what, a, what a sort of mess that became for that family. Um, so it's with a lot of things in family business. I you know I often say they're double-edged swords. You know they can be a distinct advantage, um, especially if you're in an industry that uh, um, having the human touch is necessary. Uh, but that also means internally um, you need to prepare for uh, those situations that might not be so unpl- that might be a little bit unpleasant if your name gets dragged into it. Now uh, sometimes it's difficult for families to make some decisions, particularly about succession and so on. What is the fatal flaw in family businesses in many cases? Well, I think it's it's just that ability to, um, you know, really plan for the owner's departure, whether that's sort of a planned departure or unexpected. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, sometimes the owner's ego plays a big role in that. You know, think of any business founder or even business successor that uh, really has lap, wrapped much of their life up into that business you know, that the business itself often becomes one of the children. And for an owner to sort of step away from that, um, you know, not everyone can handle that properly. The flip side of that is, you know, who takes over? And in a situation with a family business, if it's a foregone conclusion, it's going to be somebody in the family, you know, what's the guarantee that one of those family members has the skill to, you know, help grow this business, help um, help it succeed, and and also be able to step out from the owner's uh, and founder's shadow. So again, this is a role that governance can play. Having people uh, in who are non-family members help make decisions that are in the best interest of the business, not necessarily always in the best interest of the family. How it, how does one make the decision about passing the business on to a family member who may, may not be fully qualified versus a professional manager who has knowledge in that area? with all the family dynamics involved in, in giving it to a non-family member? 
I would say in an ideal scenario, this is where, you know, a, a board of directors or at the very least uh, a well-formed board of advisors could advise the ownership team to say, you know, let's do a search for this. And, and maybe in some cases you remove, you know, the father or mother from that decision and let the board handle it or at least um, let them have um, a, a certain level of input. Um, you know, an understanding of what is necessary for that business um, to move forward and grow, um, and then to be able to go out and hire that person um, based on those needs or qualifications. Uh, and it's not easy. I mean, it, it, it looks good on paper, and you can draft up, you know, policies uh, to that extent. But, you know, when somebody's son or daughter shows up and, um, you know, they're in place to be the owner or leader, um, you know, it would be hard to pick against them um, and, and disagree with uh, uh, disagree with mom or dad. So, what is the track record of family businesses not making it to the next generation because of all these issues and the uh, the original owner doesn't want to let go and bring in a professional and the uh, sons and daughters are not competent? All the things we've been talking about. What is the track record of family businesses not making it because of all these issues? Sure, and in general, the the. the you know, about 40% make the, the jump from the first to second generation. Uh, that number drops down very quickly to about 12% going from the second to third generation, and then as low as 3% making it to the fourth generation or more. On the surface, that sounds somewhat tragic. It sounds like, you know, a lot of business failures, but you have to keep in mind that each generation can be anywhere from 15 to 20 years. So by the fourth generation, you're talking about a business that could be somewhere between 50 and 80 years old. So they've, they've done pretty good to make it to that point. I think what complicates it and why you know, those numbers are what they are are um, a few things. One, the fact that with each generation you have more potential successors um, to deal with. You know, once you get to the sibling level and then cousin level and beyond, um, um, I've dealt with many family businesses that have 50-plus stakeholders who are all family members trying to figure out who's uh, next in line. I think the other issue is that um, sometimes businesses do make a good decision um, and they choose to sell. And so in those cases, the numbers that I just cited, a business that sells and leaves the family is at some level cited as a failure, even though it really isn't a failure. And, and I would you know, use the example of Welch Allen again as you know, a business that's done very well, they chose to sell but they'll be reflected in those numbers that didn't make it to the next generation. In many cases, people from the next generation don't want to be involved in the business. They want to do other things, and they're yeah. not only not suited, but they're not wanting to do it as well. So at a certain point, there may be nobody who wanted to take over and selling is the best solution is what you're saying. Well, and we've seen this more and more, especially with more um, opportunities for uh, individuals to pursue higher education, to pursue other career choices, or to pursue you know, professions that didn't even exist 10, 20 years ago. Um, this is a huge issue in China, as we saw um, this summer, where you have a whole new breed of entrepreneurs, and they are sort of reaching a maturity level um, of you know, beginning to think about um, selling or at least uh, succeeding in their business, um, but yet their children have been educated and, and really might not have any desire to return to that business. The number that I saw is as high as about 80% of those biz privately owned enterprises in China um, have no interest in returning to the family business. So, In many know, cases, because the, the old businesses were kind of old line industrial exporting yeah. dirty businesses and they, the kids wanted to go into uh, creating apps or online 
ventures or something like that not count heavy industry, and that's what seemed to be the, the issue there. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So you're saying that, uh, so is this exactly what you're doing at Cornell with your group now, is you're teaching both generations, the older generation and the younger generation, about creating these structures that will allow the business to be passed on successfully? Well, part of the goal of the conference is is to bring together um, both those generations to talk about you know what some of the, the successful businesses have done and to learn from them. Um, educationally, uh, uh, it'll certainly be part of our curriculum here um, at the university. Um, you know, so for students to understand, you know, what are some of the pathways to success, uh, whether it stays in the family or not. Um, and often, a lot of these are just good, sound management principles. Uh, they would apply to, to many businesses, but in the case of a family business, um, possibly even more so. Um, and externally, as we think about educating current business owners outside of the university setting, um, you know, these would be the types of courses and programs um, that uh, business owners certainly could benefit from. Understanding governance, um, communication amongst generations, um, you know, just various sort of legal and financial uh, implications for uh, planning for your estate uh, and succession planning. But these are things that often are not taught. They just kind of get into the business, but all these administrative and uh, structural issues are not people, things people are talking about. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Daniel Vandervliet. He's the executive director at the Smith Family Business Initiative at Cornell University, and we'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Dan Vandervliet. He's the executive director at the Smith Family Business Initiative at Cornell University. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Thanks, Jordan. And give people the website again where they can find out more about your initiative. Sure. Johnson.cornell.edu slash family business. Very good. Now, you and I were actually involved in a program over the summer, uh, the so-called iLead program, and Cornell was very much involved with that. Tell, tell us about Cornell's involvement and, and what you picked up from that program. Yeah, iLead was, uh, that was a big step out, uh, our first program here at the Smith Family Business Initiative. And the goal of that program was to bring together next generation leaders, primarily from the U.S. and China, um, to help them understand their role in their family's enterprise um, or um, transition of wealth. And uh, we spent 10 days here in the U.S., split between Philadelphia and New York. Uh, then we reconvened in Beijing and Shanghai for another 10 days. And what was really interesting about this program, it was a mix of not only family business, but also of entrepreneurship um, and just uh, a wonderful global network that brought together um, you know, two leading institutions in Cornell and Chunkong Graduate School of Business, or CKGSB, um, and two private partners, uh, Next Opportunity Group and U.S.-China Partners, um, to really help sort of launch this program and, and bring it on a, on a global scale. Uh, it was wonderful to see really such a diversity of individuals uh, from current college students all the way up through uh, seasoned um, business owners or leaders in, in their cases. Um, and over the course of those 20 days, um, to see them begin to understand you know, how important their role in family enterprise is, um, what they need to do to bring either their own family business or, in many cases, um, businesses that were completely separate from their family's enterprise, um, but also, you know, how to think about, you know, growing their business globally, whether that's partnering um, with businesses uh, in China or U.S. or just launching their product or services into those um, markets. And uh, I think it was a great first step and something uh, we are certainly looking forward to repeating. And what was Cornell's contribution to the iLead program? So for um, for this first year, uh, certainly Cornell faculty played a role in helping to deliver the program. Uh, myself uh, was on hand as a resource for students throughout the program to share any family business expertise, um, and uh, you know I would expect that role to continue to increase uh, in future years. Uh, you know I, I think a program like this really. Uh, needs a certain level of credibility and, and Cornell uh, and our ability to execute on that uh, certainly um, helps that as does um, CKGSB. Uh, they have just a wonderful presence in China. They're, they're an entrepreneurial university themselves and in 10 short years they have become uh, one of the leading graduate business schools uh, in China. Uh, their alumni in include the likes of you know, Jack Ma and many other um, Chinese entrepreneurs. Uh, so, you know, to bring together both those business, both of those graduate business schools, but also to bring together alumni from both of those institutions, or in some cases, current students, um, help them meet each other, help them learn, 
um, and, and be sort of future alumni of the iLead program uh, was a very rewarding uh, experience for all of us. Very good. So now let's get back to some of the key issues facing family businesses today. The first one we touched on a little bit is succession planning. As you say, many businesses don't get from the first generation to the second. What can people do to plan properly so that a business is succeeded, whether by somebody from the family or they bring in professional managers? Yeah, I would I would say, you know, first, and while governance is not a cure-all, I think when we talk about governance, it's it's forms of communication. And, you know, for many businesses, they're, they're so run down by the daily um, operations that they don't take time to step back and say, are we doing this right? Are we planning for the future? Um, and sometimes just having some real basic documents in place uh, is a great first step prior to, you know, thinking about, oh my gosh, do we need a board of directors? And some of those documents include something as simple as, you know, a family um, constitution or even just a family employment policy. One very ex- effective tool that I saw and it worked um, phenomenally was just to be able to sit down and list you know, five qualifications for entry into the business. And, and these included going out and getting an education and it didn't matter where or what you got your education in. Uh, it required going out um, and getting uh, three years experience outside of the family business. Again, it didn't matter where or what you did as long as you had sort of your own experience to build your own credibility. Um, it also included, um, you know, working in various capacities in your own business prior to uh, ascending into any leadership positions. Uh, and again, this helps you understand the business as well as uh, build the trust of, you know, who some of the non-family business employees might be. And often just a document like that that really sort of stipulates, you know, if the family business is an opportunity for you, but we're not just going to sort of hand it to you. This is a job like any other job, and you should be duly prepared to take on that role. Um, And if you're a family member, uh, really the responsibility is even greater because not only are you carrying the family name, uh, but you have to really prove yourself and, and sort of earn your credibility um, beyond what might be sort of uh, provided to you by the family. So you're saying it can cause real trouble if just because they, they're the son, they become mm-hmm. elevated to CEO without having the criteria, without having worked in different aspects of the business. That can cause a lot of resentment and trouble inside the family. Is that right? It can be very disruptive if you think about, you know, uh, I mean, I'll use Cornell as an example. Somebody comes here to Cornell, gets their MBA, which is a significant accomplishment in and of its own right at any school. Uh, But, you know, all of a sudden they show up back at their family business and, you know, at the crisp age of 25 or 26, uh, either they become, you know, the vice president and in charge of, you know, people who have been there and probably have much more institutional knowledge than they do, um, and, and it can create resentment. It can create, um, you know, a lack of, of trust uh, and leadership. Um, and really, uh, you know, it, it creates an inability for certain individuals to lead. Now, that's not always the case. You know, in some cases, you know, the, the, the business and the members in the business might be completely familiar with that individual. But I think that's why it's important for these businesses to have some sort of plan have some sort of way in which, you know, you, you grow up um, and, and become a leader and not just be sort of installed at a level that uh, uh, you might not be genuinely prepared to uh, take on. You have to earn it. You just can't be handed is what you're saying, really, in the end. I, you know, and I think that's important not only for the business but for the individual because you certainly don't want to be that person that even though you might be duly qualified 
and maybe even making great decisions, uh, but nobody around you seems to uh, to buy into what you're saying. Yeah. So communication is important. So how does one communicate, particularly if you get a family that's two or three generations, and you can say it could be 50, it can be 100, it could be a lot of different people all over the world in many different areas. How do you communicate if you're going to keep the business in the family? Um, you know, I've seen a few businesses that one of the things they do is they have an annual family meeting. And, you know, this can be something very formal and off-site. This could be something as simple as, you know, taking a few hours after Thanksgiving dinner to talk about, you know, the family business. Um, and this is where, you know, you share that information about what the senior generation's plans are in terms of them leaving the business, if they have plans to leave the business. This is where you would share as family members, you know, this is what's expected of you or this is the pathway for entry into the business if that's something you choose to do. Or if you choose not to, then this is what will be shared with you. Um, and and that's a real simple first step on the surface, but yet um, it can be very challenging because it's going to require some very honest communication. It might require some individuals hearing things they don't want to hear, such as, you know, this is who you know, mom and dad have chosen to be the next CEO, if that's, you know, what the decision is. Um, so that's where, you know, I would almost recommend for something maybe a little bit more formal and something that maybe you either work with a professional or, or possibly even bring in a facilitator um, so that, you know, some of this is thought out ahead of time um, and there's a forum for sort of handling those questions and, and making sure that everybody's on board with that. You're um, saying in, in many cases it is advantageous to separate what's going on in the family and what's being the business because you can cause all kinds of trouble in the family just with what's going on in the business. And specifically, there's what's called the family business three-circle model. Maybe explain yeah. how that works. Yeah, so we, we touched on this earlier, and the, and the three circles are family, business, and ownership. Um, and, you know, business is the circle where, you know, that, think of that as the day-to-day -day operations. These are the people that show up uh, to do whatever the work is that need to be done. And, and sometimes those are family members, uh, and that's where the family and business circles overlap. And sometimes they are um, non-family members that uh, often work and help um, promote that business. And then there's ownership, and that could be one person uh, who has 100% um, uh, ownership, uh, that could be a number of people either in the family or outside the family, especially if you've brought in outside investors. So the three-circle model looks at what's required in each of those three circles. There's different communication um, that needs to happen. And for some people, they might be smack dab in the middle. They might be an owner. They might be you know, the president and showing up to work every day, and they might be part of the family. What the three-circle model does is allows you to sort of think about, you know, what, what do we need to do in the family circle, what do we need to do in the business circle, and what do we need to do in the ownership circle. Um, one uh, family owner that I knew had the best way of describing it, and he talked about, you know, the different hats you wear and, you know, putting on the family hat, putting on the business hat, and putting on, um, uh, you know, the even, owner. Even though it might, maybe one person is saying to keep those roles separate is probably the best way to do it. Right. In, in this particular instance why it was so important, it was four brothers who were smack dab in the middle. They were owners, they were managers, and they were family members. Um, and they really had to be clear with each other when they were making a decision, you know, is this an ownership decision? Is this a family decision? Or is this a, um, a business decision? Um, and that's where, you know, getting back to what I was talking about earlier, sometimes having some of these things written out, shared with family, shared with business, or shared with stakeholders ahead of time, um, you know, as informal as that might be, it's a great first step 
uh, to begin to sort out some of these areas where um, there is overlap. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Dan Vandervliet. He is the executive director at the Smith Family Business Initiative at Cornell University. A uh, website to find out more would be johnson.cornell.edu slash familybusiness. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Dan Vandervliet. He is the executive director at the Smith Family Business Initiative at Cornell University. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Thanks, Jordan. Good to be back. So there is a big issue with small businesses and family businesses, which is financial controls. In many cases, they're a target of fraud more than publicly traded companies. Why is it that they're so subject to fraud in a family business? Yeah, you know, I think what happens in many family businesses is that there is sort of this this feeling of family and this feeling that you can trust everybody. Um, and that, that can certainly lead to some instances where the family gets taken advantage of, in some cases, by their own family members. And, um, you know, especially if uh, in some families, you know, there's, there's sort of this idea of taking from the till. Um, you know, if you need some cash, you know, that's okay to go ahead and do that. Uh, and and also, you know, just the idea of putting financial controls in, having, having maybe non-family members or having, you know, trusted advisors, you know, sort of double look at the books. Um, and, you know, we've seen too many stories now where uh, longtime employees, uh, you know, reach a level of trust uh, and security with the family, um, and then they start to take advantage of them. So I think what it speaks to is, is you know, even before we get to the whole idea of fraud, I think for any family business, any business really, 
you know, having the proper financial controls in place, having a good set of books, a professionally done set of books, so that when the idea of succession comes uh, on the table for discussion, um, you have accurate numbers to look at. And, and sometimes families inflate certain numbers, sometimes they hide certain numbers. Um, you know, this is not uncommon, uh, but when it comes time to really estimate the true value of the business for succession purposes, whether that's in family or out of family, um, you know, you need to have an accurate reflection of, of what's going on in the business financially. You know, the idea of fraud, you know, then moves in. If, if those controls are not in place, then you really become a target. Um, and, and again, we've seen instances where that happens from inside the family or outside the family. And, and, and it's always, you know, just uh, a tragedy when, when you hear about it. How do families make correct decisions on distributions? How much of the profits to share with the family, both those that are working in it and those that are not active in the business? The people who are not active probably want bigger distributions of dividends. Those involved probably want to reinvest in the business more. How do you make those kind of decisions? Those decisions can really be all over the board. And uh, a, a friend of mine who was in a family business once said, if you've seen one family business, you've seen one family business. And and I think what that means is that each each business really needs to decide that for themselves. Some are very equitable and decide that, you know, uh, distributions are going to be made, you know, regardless of, um, you know, whether you're working in the business or not. Others treat it more professionally and say, you know, only those in the business, um, you know, are, uh, are going to be privy to uh, those benefits. Um, you know, there's, there's that level which happens in the business, but then there's also the, the level of at the estate where, you know, what, what is the wealth that's generated from the business and how that um, translates into, um, you know, an estate. Uh, and then, you know, those distributions um, are separate and distinct from what happens in the business. What can people, smaller businesses, learn from large family businesses that have done very well over many generations, like the Rockefellers or the Carnegie, something like that? What can a small business learn about the systems that were set up to allow a business to go into several generations? You know, I would say it's it's a matter of being professional, a matter of you know, getting the right sort of external help when necessary to put, uh, you know, those financial controls and books into place. Um, to also realize that, uh, you know, you are sort of stewards of that business. You are stewards of the employees that uh, work for you and help you succeed. And you are stewards of whatever wealth might be created. And what we've seen from the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Pitcarns is, you know, they, they give a lot of that wealth back in various ways. Um, and actually, one of the conference uh, workshops on Friday will talk about, um, you know, the role of, uh, you know, understanding uh, stewarding wealth and stewarding the business. And regardless of size, you know, the, the conversation of money is secondary, that the conversation really begins in the family as to what we're going to do with all this and how we're going to do it. And whether that's, you know, $100 or $100 million, um, you need to figure it out as a family first before you even put a dollar sign to it. How might the way businesses happen today, which could be quite quick as far as you write an app or you do some kind of a software or, you know, you can be young and 25 or 30 and have a multi-million dollar business quickly over the internet these days. What, what kind of family businesses are those going to be when you have somebody starting really, really young being very successful very quickly? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a phenomenal area of study because, you know, we're seeing younger and younger sort of business owners and entrepreneurs, and, and we certainly see a lot of that here um, at Cornell. Uh, and, and I think what we see 
is is a shift from what we traditionally call family business into either families in business, uh, which is what the name of our conference is, or family enterprise. And, and what that really implies is that you know the family is really sort of the business unit. And regardless of what businesses are created um, or sold within the family, you know the family is sort of really what uh, shepherds that process through. And, and we're seeing this also in, in places like um, you know some of the successful family businesses in India. There's some great examples of you know them creating almost um, uh, you know uh, like a, a pool of wealth, almost like an investment capital that family members can draw upon and be entrepreneurial. Uh, and all of these businesses are sort of part of the portfolio of the family. Uh, and I think this is, you know, probably where we're kind of heading. I, I think there's always a role for small business and, and the local uh, family-owned businesses. But as tech and more and more businesses become, you know, rapid, fast, and global, um, what I think you're going to see is more, you know, it's the families that kind of get that right um, and, you know, uh, understand how to capitalize on those advantages um, and, and continually cycle that wealth through to create new enterprises or new avenues for wealth generation. As we sum up, as we come to a close here, why don't you kind of summarize the pitfalls and the promises of what can be done if family, family businesses are run right and what happens if they are not run right? Yeah. So the pitfalls are, you know, those families that, you know, we see on the news, you know, that that um, end up either in um, legal battles against each other because uh, they didn't figure these things out before mom or dad um, died um, and there was no clear written plan. And often, uh, unfortunately, what happens is the business itself suffers. Uh, about 48 percent of all business failures are precipitated by the owner's uh, death. So if, if you don't have this spelled out ahead of time, um, chances are it's going to get um, real ugly um, in the aftermath. The advantages are, you know, I've, I've talked with family business owners and, and quite frankly, you know, some of them have brought tears to my eyes when they talk about, you know, just that feeling of unity that, you know, one owner talked about, uh, it was like, coaching Little League, that he would get to come to work each day and see his children succeed and sometimes fail, um, and, and what a joy that was uh, for both him and the business, and you know, it's no surprise that that business has been around for four generations. So, you know, it's, I think business at the core is about adding value to your customers. And if you, if you can add value through that personal relationship, if you can add value through the fact that as a customer, I feel good about walking in your door. Uh, spending my money with you uh, and getting a great uh, return on that investment, um, you know, I'll take that over, you know, sort of swiping a credit card on the internet any day. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Daniel Vandervliet. He's the executive director at the Smith Family Business Initiative at Cornell University. You can find out more about him and the conference they have coming up at the end of this week at johnson.cornell.edu slash familybusiness. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Dan. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.